Welcome to the HR Resource Podcast. There can't be many humans on the planet who can say that they've talked technology with the likes of Stephen Hawking, Dame Martha Lane Fox, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the internet, not once, but on a dozen occasions, talked social media with Mark Zuckerberg, or driven a Tesla for a catch-up with Elon Musk. I'm talking, of course, of the BBC's technology correspondent, Rory Catlin-Jones, whose illustrious broadcasting career has seen him provide fantastic insights and practical explanations for the innovations and technological developments that have taken place over the past few years. In his new book, Always On, which we discuss in this episode, Rory talks about a period in time from the launch of the iPhone through to current day apps and technology and how much it's impacted on our lives. Point of fact, at that Steve Jobs presentation in San Francisco in January 2007, Rory was actually in the room and also managed to get his hands on an iPhone for a broadcast for the evening news. So tune in, sit somewhere comfortable, turn off all technology apart from the device that's going to deliver you this wonderful podcast and just enjoy, because I'm sure you will. And if you did, please leave us a review. HR Resource with David Lord and Guests. They love talking about people, but in a good way. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the HR Souls podcast, one only, Rory Kathleen Jones. Um, many of you will know the name, many of you will remember the voice, and also, if you're watching the video, you'll also remember the face. Uh, Rory's had a long uh, and illustrious career with the BBC, and latterly as the technology reporter. Welcome, Rory. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Um, today, what I wanted to focus on really was uh, something that Rory's been working on as a, as a project for a, a last for 12 months or so. He's recently published a book called Always On. Um, I've just finished the book. I thoroughly recommend that you get a copy as, uh, as soon as you finish listening to the podcast. But we're going to touch on elements that Rory covers in the book, uh, which I find quite fascinating. Before we get into that, any of you, and it might be a small number you've never heard of Rory, um, what can you tell the listeners, Rory, about your background? How you, um, how you moved from the, uh, I think you went to Cambridge University, is that right? Yes, a very long, long time ago. Um, I am a BBC lifer. I did a bit of, I, I was studying modern languages at Cambridge and uh, I made a, this big decision as my final year approached and I came back from a year abroad in Paris. I did not want to be an accountant. All of my friends had become accountants. I'm sure it's a great profession. I did not want to be one. I wanted to be a journalist. So I immersed myself in student journalism, uh, got on the student paper, wrote loads of stuff, applied for every training scheme going, yeah. didn't get there, was unemployed for about three months, but had got to the final stage of a BBC training scheme and said, what can I do? You, you, you haven't given me the job. They said, oh, well, write to all our regional newsrooms, have, give it a go. And one of those newsrooms, Leeds, uh, gave me a three-month contract, just a three-month contract. And look north, look north, is that? Yeah, uh, I was a researcher on, on there. And very quickly, 18 months later, I got a job in the main television newsroom in London as a producer. Wow. Uh, um, which was, funnily enough, at first, nothing like as exciting as working on a local news program where you did everything. But then I broke out again, wanted to be on screen and went to the BBC in Wales, which is a very happy time to be a reporter on Wales today. Uh, came back, was a reporter on BBC Breakfast, then became a business reporter in the late 80s, early 90s, worked on programmes like the Money Programme. Yeah. Fun. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, I got slightly bored with doing the Marks and Spencer's results for the one o'clock news, all felt a bit routine. What was beginning to be really interesting was the rise of companies like Google. Yeah. Uh, and 
the whole sort of dot-com era about which I wrote a book actually. Um, so I immersed myself in that and eventually the BBC, BBC took some time, but uh, in 2007, I was doing so many technology stories they decided to call me technology correspondent. And that's what I've been doing since. So radio, television, online, and I have a weekly radio program on the World Service called Tech 10, which is- Yeah, call that, very good. good. Where I'm very good. I can roam free. So yeah. that's what we do. Um, your book, your previous book, was that Dot Bomb? It was called Dot Bomb, and it was uh, about the, the UK's very short, much less dramatic dot-com bubble than there was in the United States, but a really fascinating time. Um, it was a book that was uh, published in 2001 on the 9th of September, which turned out not to be a good time to publish a book, because no. uh, you know what happened two days later. Yeah. But uh, it was great to write a book. So... 20 years on, um, a published from Bloomsbury, well, 18 years on, because it's, it's taken sort of get, getting on for two years to get this book out, came to me uh, and asked if I had a book in me, uh, another book in me. And we, we came upon this idea of basically taking all the experience I've had since 2007 uh, and looking at the smart, what I call the smartphone social era. Because what's fascinating is how quickly that all came together. I started my job. The very first thing I did was uh, go to California uh, from a big conference that I was attending in Las Vegas, which I go to every year called CES. Oh, the big tech, yeah, the big tech. Yeah, and I said to the BBC, who had already spent money sending me to Las Vegas, listen, we ought to spend a bit more money and pop off for one day to this conference in California, uh, in San Francisco, called Macworld, where Steve Jobs is going to unveil something. And he did, uh, and it was the iPhone. And of course, that was a moment in history. And when you think, uh, 2004, Facebook was founded. 2005, YouTube was founded. 2006, Twitter was founded. 2007, the iPhone comes along. And all of those things came together uh, to create this smartphone and social media uh, combination which has had such an impact on society. And, and on to the be world. in the room when what you know, the rock star that was Steve Jobs in his polo neck, giving his, giving his wonderful sort of showman style presentation. I mean, that must've been quite, I mean, I've seen the videos. We've all seen yeah. the videos and stuff, but to actually be there. I mean, is there much you can remember about that? Oh, I remember everything. I, I, I've got a whole chapter of the book about it because it was, uh, it was gripping uh, to a, a, a Brit. Uh, and, you know, British reporters are slightly cynical, cynical old hacks. At first it was, oh, why are people standing up and cheering? This is not what we do. This is a press conference. There's no Mexican waves going on on this side of the world. Yeah, yeah. But he was, he was a master at whipping up. The, he was like an old time preacher. He started off, he sort of walks onto the stage uh, with his jeans and his black polo neck and his wireframe glasses. And he says, he stops and he pauses and he says, we're going to make some history here today. Uh, and then he goes into this whole routine. He goes, he goes through the history of what he calls some his groundbreaking products, like the, I, uh, the original Mac, uh, the iMac, uh, the iPod. Uh, and then he goes into this routine where he says, we're going, to involve, we're going to unveil three kind of groundbreaking products today, uh, a music player, an internet device, and a phone. And then he keeps saying this, and a music player, an internet device, and a phone. And then he says, are you getting it yet? And it turns out, of course, that they're all- Levels of one. excitement. Exactly. He's whipped up the crowd like a, a revivalist preacher. Uh, and then he reveals that they're, of course, all one device, and it's called the iPhone. Yeah. And they all go barking mad. So that was uh, a moment in history. And I, I, I got into trouble initially I, I did this report on the 10 o'clock news and yeah. getting it done was a kind of huge scramble uh, because of course we were eight hours behind but the, the pictures had begun to emerge and the the news desk rang up really excited about it and said oh you've got to get your hands on your, that phone and I tell a story in the book of how I did amazingly get my hand on the phone because you know Apple does not is a very controlling company but somehow I managed to do it anyway there were complaints from some viewers that the BBC was hyping a product 
And that's not what you should be doing on the news. No, no. And I went on to the complaints program, Newswatch, and I made this case, which I was kind of nervous about at the time. I thought, have I gone over the top? And I said, would the BBC have covered the launch of the Model T Ford if we'd been around then? Um, And I thought, oh, that was a bit over the top. But actually, think, think, think what the iPhone did. It wasn't the first smartphone by any means. Nokia, with whom I had a lot of dealings over the years, had made lots of very clever devices. Yeah. But they were, they needed virtually hacking. To, to get on the internet, you had to press 14 buttons yeah. uh, and you probably gave up halfway through. They didn't look intuitive. They didn't look magical. That, that expression that yeah. Steve Jobs uh-huh. possibly overused, but it was a magical device. Uh, and therefore, everybody else copied him. And the, the key thing was, although the hardware was beautiful, actually, we were moving into a software era in the telecoms industry. It wasn't, and, and that was where the, the baton was passed from kind of old fashioned telecoms companies and the, the, the mobile operators having a big sway to two software giants yeah. Uh, well, Apple, a hardware and a software giant, uh, Google with Android, um, controlling everything and, 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 and uh, a huge wave of change because it wasn't just the iPhone. It was the fact that in 2008, they launched the App Store. Uh, kind of interesting because Steve Jobs had not wanted to, you know, open up the platform. He wanted well, so much, very control. much control. Yeah. But that was the kind of making of it because that drove an enormous amount of innovation uh, and beat the, beat the rivals. You know, the, for instance, Microsoft was hoping to do well with its Windows phone operating system, but because there was so much, all the innovation was happening and all the developers were developing for the iPhone and for Android, uh, they were left out in the cold. Yeah, it was, it was the breakout of the APIs and able to, to get people to be able to interact. They were doing it anyway, weren't they? They were sort of they were sort of trying to break. They were so in love with the the iPhone. They were trying to break it and create their own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was better to have them on the inside working within the Apple's constraints rather than have them yeah, in the Wild West. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but uh, talking about the Wild West, I mean, it, it's the formation of a business. Um, HR Source is a brand that is owned by a company called R2B Media, which I I, I run. But R2B um, started as an app development business. Right. We've been developing apps on a, on a relatively small scale for about 10 years. So for me, thank you very much. <laughs> it's, been, it's been quite a quite a journey. And I think for me as well, looking at the way in which we, the, I got into that is I looked around and I got quotes of 30, 40, 50,000 pounds to develop what I considered to be just a variation on a website. Yeah. On this platform. So, well, it can't cost that amount of money. And sure enough, it didn't. But you have but, but, but I literally did it myself. With, with obviously the skills and the talent and, the, and all the, the bright. Well, the yeah, the interesting thing was there, they, they, for a while, it seemed a huge kind of liberation. I talk, I talk about the era of the bedroom developers and a kid that was a friend of my son's, who was 16, who built an app called The Impossible Game. Oh. Uh, and, and he built it for Xbox yeah. and then he ported it to iPhone. And one evening, his dad, uh, got a phone call at home from a, an executive in California and Apple saying, uh, Mr. Bentley, um, we're making your app, app of the week. It's going to be big uh, on the app. And he said, I don't know what on earth you're talking yeah. about. And it turned out his son, because 16 was too young to register to have an app, uh, had given his dad's name. Um, and his dad was quite grateful in the end because he then had to open uh, an American bank account to take the six-figure sum that that app earned in the very nice those days, yeah, brilliant. So yeah. that kind of uh, you know small player, I think the professionalization moved on, and you know it's basically a big players mainly now. And you you've um, over the time we would million miles away in terms of our ages and I think it, you know, we, we, we've seen a, a technology in our generation a technological I've just got to stop you there because my 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 watch is listening to me oh, and okay. Siri has started talking to me I've got an Apple watch and it does it all the time it's quite quite annoying. It, it not you're not touching the screen you're not doing it just seems to just pick up on keywords yeah. you're yeah. being listened to 
Um, we're an age, I think, where we remember things like the dot bomb, but prior to that, I think I was, was thinking about technology and it's the dot, the, um, the first sort of innovation that I can remember being, I used to work for Thomas Cook back in the days, the, the, for the financial services arm of Thomas Cook. Right. And a uh, company car, and I was, I was given a, a, a phone that sat in the car, it was about 1988, 1989, you know, and it was, it wasn't a brick. I mean, it was, it was, it was just science. That's why the, the company, the retailer was called the Car Phone Warehouse, because that's how they started. They were, I remember that. I was a reporter in, in, in South Wales when uh, those phones were coming along and we didn't have phones. We had a Storno radio system like, like, uh, like taxi drivers used to use. Yeah. But then a reporter from London came down and she took out of her handbag a mobile phone that was not tied to a car. It was a, a brick, but we were just, wow, that is amazing. It's mobile. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Such Brilliant. excitement. Yeah. So in, in terms of, um, we're going to get into the, a little bit more detail about some, some of the areas of the book, um, but the way in which podcasts work, and I think I mentioned this to you before in our exchanges, uh, I quite like to give people an opportunity, maybe they're just sort of catching a little bit of this podcast, they're going to move on and then listen to the rest of it. Could you just let people know how, you know, how they can keep in touch with you and find out what's going on, like your Twitter handle and perhaps a website that they could find you? Well, uh, my Twitter handle is at Ruskin147, which is thereby hangs a tail, which I won't go to now, but uh, I was a very early Twitter adopter in 2007 and just flung at it. It was actually, I was born at 147 Ruskin Park House in, in South London. Um, uh, and that's the origins of that. Uh, I'm welcome to ask. That's a good, good, good way to contact me. Um, and uh, you'll find... Uh, a lot of my work on the BBC website, uh, the BBC news site, um, especially bbc.com slash technology, which is what I always say at the end of my tech tent program. You can find my tech tent program, which is broadcast at various hours on, over the course of Friday on the world service, but it's available from about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Friday as a, as a podcast. Yeah. Just look for Tech Tent on BBC Sounds. Yeah. And we cover the week's technology news, three, usually three items, uh, a bit of a chat about what's going on with uh, one of our, my colleagues, tech reporters, and um, it's a good way of keeping up. We've covered things like semiconductor crisis uh, and Apple's changes to the, the advertising program, which is uh, to the way advertising works, which is a big source of controversy. Yeah. Uh, Essential guide to the week's technology news, I say. I, I love the piece on, um, I was fascinated with the piece about the, the Facebook moderator um, and yeah. the, the effect, uh, which we'll come on to, but, but some of the effects of, of actually having that job and some of the content that they have to, uh, to work through, which is, is a bit of an eye opener and, and the way in which uh, it's had obviously had an impact on her. Um, I want to just maybe start off on this piece. And you've talked about really the start of the book, which is, Steve Jobs and the the launch in January twenty uh, January two thousand seven, um, but but a little bit I want to step a little bit back and think about how we sort of became this emergence of technology in this format and search is probably a, a, a decent way of, of of thinking about it. And certainly my timeline, um, and I'm going back to things like Yahoo, um, MSN Messenger, uh, yeah. MSN, um, Ask Jeeves. Um, yes, I remember in the newsroom in the 90s, uh, somebody discovering something called, a, a few of us found something called All of the Web, which was just yeah, before yeah. Google, and it was absolutely uh, compelling, and you raced around the newsroom saying, this is so different from anything else. Um, and then, of course, Google came along and everything else disappeared. Away. I mean, I, I, of course, there were two great innovations. of Google, first of all, the search engine itself, and then them having not thought about this at all suddenly thinking of a way to monetize it yeah um so that was the other uh great innovation yeah i mean i, I as a father i had two young daughters who were, who were young teens who were getting immersed in this language that i had no idea what it was all about in fact i know they were preteens, i think but the msn messenger and the, the conversations they were having, I just, it was hieroglyphics to me. It was, it was quite bizarre, a language that they created to be able to talk to their friends. 
And that was the catalyst. But prior to that, I could have become this, this some people might say I'm a dinosaur, but the people might have put, but that was the thing that made me think, well, hang on a minute. I'm, I'm a marketer. I'm interested in business development. I'm interested in entrepreneurism. I need to be aware of what's going on because there's a whole world going on out there that's moving on to another level. Um, and I didn't have the advantage, obviously, of having your job, which is obviously to, to keep in touch with that. I mean, that, that in itself uh, is a challenge, Rory. How do you, how do you map and keep, keep on track of, of everything that's being developed? It's, it's, it, it gets ever harder. And the problem is that as one gets older, you probably get more conservative about what you think is a story. Uh, I mean, my, my email is a shambles. You know, I probably get 300 emails a day. Uh, what one could spend one's entire life dealing with it. Uh, and I spend a lot of time not answering emails, but just deleting them unread. Just people pushing product at you. Just, you yeah, know, yeah. Just, well, well, the, 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 great, the latest thing since it's the best thing since sliced bread yeah. is your way, Rory. You've, you've got to feature this. Well, don't forget the public relations industry is huge. And somebody in, a, in the United States once calculated that there was something like five PRs for every journalist. So, uh, and, and it's of a, a huge variety. There are individual public relations executives for big companies that I respect and I have a relationship with, and I know they know what I do uh, and what, what's likely to make a story. And then there are uh, agencies who employ poor kids whose basic job is to spam journalists in a very indiscriminate way. I mean, one example, I get tons of stuff saying, oh, our client's written an authored piece. Will you publish it? And I kind of go, have you ever read the BBC website? You know, we don't do that. And neither actually do any of the national newspapers. So what's that about? So it, it is difficult. Um, I have found actually since social media came along, Twitter has been a huge not so much these days, but was at the, be the beginning, a brilliant way of uh, getting stories. Uh, in the early days, I used to go on Twitter and ask, ask questions. Who is the world's expert on batteries? I remember saying once. Uh, I've got to, I had to do a piece for the 10 o'clock news on a big breakthrough in batteries. Somebody came on from Bath University saying, oh, one of our profs is, uh, got in the car, went down and interviewed that prof. and. You and I got a certain amount of kudos within the organisation. You're an early adopter. So yeah. You're an early adopter, so you were in there and, and actually yeah. were surrounded by other early adopters who were probably had a fairly similar mindset at that time about being sort of connectors, um, mini mavens maybe. But Well, the tech community, very quickly, in the, in the summer of 2007, they were all just trying out Facebook. And then by the autumn, they'd somehow all moved to Twitter. They decided this was, this was the place. And for a while, it was a kind of like an intimate club. And then, of course... Yeah. It got crowded. <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, so so in terms of the, the, the Google search, one of the things that um, I think we need to be mindful of as well, and it is something you touch on in the book, but we rely. We can we can be very very lazy in our thinking. If I mean, there was a, there was a situation I was like watching an, an archaeological um, dig program about Robin Hood, and um, and and Clipston and the original um, King John's residence that he had in the forest. Um, in Sherwood Forest, and they were talking about the road, and not once did they mention the A1, because I think, well, it's the A1. It's a, and then I was thinking, what was the Roman name? What was the, the old traditional name for the, for, the, for the A1? Now, we could just Google that. Mm. We could just have, but I spent a good half an hour with my poor little brain thinking, now I'm going to try and remember it, and I did, um, Ermine Street. So it, that, that popped back into my head from a memory, and I think that's almost like a muscle. I feel like we've got to we've got to keep doing that. Otherwise, it's just too easy to Google something, isn't it? I know it's time's yeah. an issue. If time's an issue, it's great. But I think there are times when we've got to think. Well, actually, we, we do have memories, and it is in there somewhere. We just have to get that little the cogs whirring. Well, I hate to think, you know, if 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 Google didn't exist, how how one would get through one's daily <laughs> routine as a journalist? My brain just checking things, you know. Yeah. I be I spent a lot of today checking the Bitcoin price, for example, oh. <laughs> which has been hurtling in all sorts of directions. Yeah, where where is it right now? Uh, well, earlier this afternoon it had fallen towards thirty thousand, and then it recovered somewhat. I'm not quite sure where it is lately. Okay, but um, I, I watch on with bemused horror actually because I I kind of hate the whole cryptocurrency scene. Oh. 
I'm, I'm cynical. I'm probably, probably in a very similar camp with our view on it, but I wanted to, I got drawn in because I saw a cryptocurrency um, called New4 or 4New and it, and, and it was a blog. I was listening to a podcast, actually, you know, a podcast with these two guys who talk constantly, American guys, talking about um, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, what's happening in the industry. I was in the gym and I suddenly heard my ears pricked up because they started talking about Teesside, which is where I'm based. And they talked about the fact this new um, Bitcoin was going, this, sorry, this new cryptocurrency was going to uh, revolutionize things because it was actually going to be based on energy and they had purchased two plants, recycling plants, using biodegradable bio, um, waste product was going to be turned into energy, and they owned the plants, and it was going to be that, you know, it was very clever. And I thought, well, that sounds great, and it's local, so I'll have a look at this. Um, so I actually bought into this idea, uh, only to discover after doing what you should do first every time, do your due diligence, do your research before you get your wallet, get your hand in your wallet. Um, they hadn't bought these plants. They hadn't any- Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> they got a lovely video of somebody wandering around the site as if they owned it, mm. but they were just doing a bit of a promo video and nobody knew why they were there, why they were there which sort of came out as their, we own it. And um, yeah, I think the Mirror did a piece on them a couple of years ago. Um, some of the people that unfortunately that, that, that had worked there and now left have been, given, have been given death threats and all sorts, but it is, Pretty much. The whole world is, is uh, of cryptocurrency is full of scams. I tell a story in the book about uh, when I was already very cynical, uh, uh, an email dropped in my inbox from somebody promoting what they called a, a cryptocurrency for care homes, where yeah. residents of care homes could, yeah, in a care way, buy their room with this new cryptocurrency that was being created for it. And I thought this was completely bonkers and again the person promoting it said they were a leader in the care home industry and it turned out they owned one which basically closed down because they went bankrupt um so buyer beware yeah it's a, it's a sort of way to, they pay out their executives nice big hefty salaries but then they find that people and, and which is true of a lot of sort of tech business startups as well you know if it's badly managed you'll find executives living a, a life of luxury and staff quite often don't find themselves getting paid yeah um, yeah bit of a warning sign isn't it um in terms of your background your history i mean you've met some what i consider to be sort of the rock star a-listers of the, of the tech world um you met elon musk you um you've met mark zuckerberg the wonderful tim berners lee um Demis Asabis, who is the, the new kind of rock star, is the most interesting man in Britain, the founder of DeepMind. Oh, the AI. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, these people are all, um, is there a common thread? Is, is there, I mean, I, I've met some really fantastic people in business, and I would say that they're pretty much, some of them are, are most definitely on a spectrum in terms of their social skills and in some of the way that they, they interact with people. They're brilliant people, but then they, they, they perhaps don't have some of the other, um, yeah, as a television reporter, it, it was difficult. It's always been difficult to find people who can, in this world, express themselves in a way that the, the world will understand. Yeah. Um, obviously, somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, when I first met him, which is, I've only met him a couple of times, but it was 2008 uh, when he came to London. And he, he looked like a shy, geeky kid, the sort of person who looks at their shoes rather, even rather than your shoes. Yeah. Um, uh, but he'd obviously begun to have a bit of media training and he's got a, a lot slicker. I think he's still not, you know, a very engaging or charismatic person, but he's obviously brilliant um, uh, and driven. Uh, and what's interesting about him is that he, by all logic, and I told him this in 2008, should have sold up when, you know, in, in a two or three years they were making, they were, they were growing really fast, but they had z virtually zero revenues. And some somebody comes along and offers you a billion and then $10 billion. Uh, why would you turn them down? But of course he did. And uh, that decision was- uh, He might've been right. But yes, he might've been right. But yeah, I mean, I, uh, up to the point of which, um, I think you were tweeting today about uh, that, that 
Tim Berners-Lee making the statement about where we are with the internet and his sort of optimism. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm writing a sort of, uh, I've got a, a kind of newsletter that goes with the book. Uh, I've been trying out Substack. I don't know if people know about Substack, but I yes. a newsletter every day. And today's chat was about, I, I'm trying to devote one to each chapter in the book. Today was about where everything starts to go downhill. It was, it's called The Woes of the Web, that chapter. And it really focuses on Tim Berners-Lee, yeah. who is a fascinating, I mean, he, is the world's most difficult person to interview because he's. I've seen him speak. I, I was at an event where he was one of the keynote speakers, or the keynote speaker, and I was so excited about seeing him. It was, you know, fascinating. Seeing, and, and bless him, he, and it was a brilliant guy, and what he's given to the world is just truly remarkable, but not the greatest speaker in the world. It really it, it's it's quite hard to follow. When you've done an interview, it's kind of, how am I going to edit this? Because it, actually, I always think he's a bit like the World Wide Web because he has an idea. And then he leaps on to another idea. And he leaps on another idea. And then, yeah, yeah. Click, click, click. It's, yeah. Um, but a, a, a privilege to have met, I've met oh, him. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, in, and in terms of where we've got now, we, we think about Zuckerberg. Uh, obviously, that takes us on to social media with Facebook, sort of preeminent position. And Cambridge Analytica that hit really quite a, um, as I mentioned, like a watershed moment, because once we started to delve into what was going on behind the scenes, once we lifted the cover and the public began to realize what was happening. Sorry. Okay, do you need to... the, pro the, the problems of, um, uh, of social media, I'm, uh, I'm just being FaceTimed by my son, so I shall tend oh. to go away. Blame <laughs> me. Um, yeah. yeah, so that so the, the realization of where these privacy settings had led us even to the well even despite the fact that Facebook had said that they had asked for certain information to have been deleted anyway that they later discovered was still around but nevertheless we were being tracked in a way that I don't think many of us really truly yeah we, we suddenly the business model and the, the business model is becoming more and more apparent to people I mean the old cliche is if if you're not paying you are the product um, the business model is gathering vast amounts of data and selling advertising off the back of it. Um, now, there is a point of view that says, as long as you understand that, that's fine. That is what you're getting, actually, is, a, is more relevant advertising. You're going to get, if something's for free, there's going to be advertising. Would you rather have advertising that might be applicable to you or completely irrelevant advertising? Um, because there is an argument that if you get rid of all the tracking, what you get is lowest common denominator advertising, which a lot of it will be kind of gambling ads. Yeah. Um, but most people, I think, are pretty creeped out when they realise the extent of the tracking. The, the fact that uh, it's not just in somebody's property. You know, when an app, uh, when you sign up to a Facebook app or... Uh, an, an, an iPhone app, um, what, what you're often doing is allowing them to track you, not just during that app, but when you go off around the internet. And that's why that pair of shoes that you looked at once follows you around the internet. Absolutely. And, and not only that, but people taking it, and it's something I never really particularly bothered with much, but there's a lot of, lot of friends on Facebook would take part in these cellular competitions of Quiz, yeah, I mean that self as a puppy, or you know whatever the dark thing is, and little did they know that they're answering funny in some details, sending over some personal information, and in the process of doing that, they sign their life away to being spammed. And yeah, yeah, um, and you know we we've all uh, well the the latest thing of course is vast amounts of telephone spam or uh, telephone um, phishing attacks. Um, uh, I and you you wonder how you ended up on on a list, but you know your data is incredibly valuable and is is sold around the world. So they they're really now under the cosh in regards to privacy statements. I mean, one of the things that I don't know whether you agree with this, but from my my perspective, and I'm and I'm including Google in this as well because I actually think Google, despite Google Plus, which was a complete disaster, I do think Google is a social media site because for me you know you've got the you've got the uh, for businesses you've got that key graph um google my business proposition 
which if you search for anything, and that's the first thing we do, we've, we search for something, you've then got, if you actually manage to claim that piece of real estate on their, on their site for your business, you can work with it and actually turn it into something that was quite a quite an asset for your business. That's that's no different to a to a profile and other social media sites. And don't forget, they own this little business called YouTube. Oh yeah, one of the most powerful social platforms there is, and one where actually has also been rife with abuse, which is the the problem that they're all dealing with. I mean, uh, you only have to see the comments under videos to to understand what a challenge that is. And now we're having governments taking them to task. So we, we you know, we're getting, um, you know, Australia have taken particular views on it. Germany and, and is leading the European cry um, for changing the way in which uh, these large organisations use our data. Where do you, can you see that falling out? Do you think there's going to be a charter? I think the presentation I saw Tim Berners-Lee, he was talking about it almost like a charter. Um, you know, like a, like yeah, he has got this sort of charter for the web. Um, which he wants people to gather around, it's quite difficult to see how that's going to work. I mean, of course, here in the UK, we've got the online safety bill, which is, has been coming a long time and is still going to be a long way away. But it kind of sums up the challenge because it's doing a, a number of things. It, it's, it's giving these social media platforms a duty of care over users and telling them uh, that they've got to look out for things that are harmful but not illegal yeah i need to find that's difficult but they've also got to maintain free speech so they they could they could be in trouble for allowing stuff and they can be in trouble for banning stuff so that is going to be a huge challenge policing that and it's going to be a big job for ofcom the regulator which has already got an enormous job and it's going to get even bigger yeah And and a good example of that i guess is when you have to make a judgment call on on somebody like mr trump president trump who who managed to get away with quite a lot for quite a lot of time which most normal twitter account holders would not have been allowed to have and suddenly then they pulled the plug um rightly so in my opinion i mean that was that was that was a correct decision whether it should have been done sooner we don't know but i mean from from my perspective twitter most of the time gets is, is and it's starting to improve the way it's monitoring moderating and managing its site now i think i think it's making the right steps was that is that your experience are you you seeing a better well i mean uh, facebook and twitter uh, uh, and facebook's much more in in the crosshairs than than twitter because facebook is frankly much more influential we all obsess about twitter because we're we spend more time on it but facebook is far more important in terms of its influence for good and ill so uh they all to some extent but facebook more than others uh, were caught napping or were caught they never moved fast enough during the whole disinformation rows which kind of started in 2016 in the first trump presidential election uh, and accelerated over the those years and then last year we saw them the social platforms say we're going to be tough this time we're going to stamp out misinformation but they failed or they were always just behind the curve and it yeah, was the very last moment that they acted the technology's been ahead of the legislation all the way along. It's, yeah, it's just well, there isn't any legislation. The, the, it's been ahead of the, well, there is. There's this key law, Section Two Hundred and Thirty, in the United States, which protects them from effectively from legal action about what people say on their platforms, um, and it's been really important in allowing small, small and large web companies to to prosper. But uh, is now under the microscope. What do you make of um, innovations within social media? I mean, the latest one that, that I'm aware of is Clubhouse um, as, a, as a different way of approaching social media. And for those of you who've not used Clubhouse and been aware of it, it's, it's very much a, an audio only. Um, it's almost like going to a series of different conferences or webinars. Yeah, it's, all, it's, all I, it's been for an extraordinary period, Clubhouse. It's the quickest boom and bust you've ever seen, I think, because... About six weeks ago, it was the hottest thing around. And now it, it seems to already have kind of, ah, Clubhouse, I can't be bothered with that. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting idea, but basically it's quite an analog idea when I joined up um, because it's, it's, it's like a radio station with a, a schedule. If you miss it, if you miss a particular discussion, yeah. you can't rewind. It's not recorded. No. Isn't it? It's just not recorded. It, so you, no point. you're not. In a way, the attractive thing is that you, you, the idea is that 
it's quite an intimate and you can find yourself chatting to big wheels in Silicon Valley. But of course, that only lasts so long. Quite, quite quickly, the, the big wheels in Silicon Valley, they don't really want to talk to you and me. Um, uh, they, they may dip their toe in the water. Or they may use it as a broadcast medium for a while yeah. and they're off. Uh, so I think it's quite difficult for, for Clubhouse at the moment. I mean, Twitter has uh, designed uh, a rival called Spaces, which I've yet to work out how, how that works. Um, you can see Facebook. the up on the top of the top of the screen there, and, and it's I think it's it's taken over from partly taken over from the, the demise of Periscope, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's I, my feeling with Clubhouse. I, I had a friend who really loves it, and she uh, found it really useful. She found a community there that gathered there, and that's it's it strikes me that what is good about it is it's it's a series of micro communities. Yeah. Um, and if you find one of them, that's great. But it, do, it, it doesn't feel to me like it scales. I think many people will have my experience, which is going to it and uh, being bombarded with notifications, going in, staying 10 seconds and going, I don't like this, um, and leave it. And I, that's the only one I've really enjoyed is one I ran myself. And it reminded me of what Noel Coward said about television in the 1950s. He said, Darling, television's for being on, not watching. Oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but in a way, I, I'm also, and I, I, I could participate more actively than I am, and I'm quite a passive. I've gone on, I've listened to a few of these chats that have happened in these rooms and tried to understand what's happening. And where I think it's starting to lose a little bit of its interest for me is that there's too many people trying to sell. There's just, yeah. and I know you're going to get that in any social media platform. Yeah. But you don't want, that's not why you're there. You're there to learn, you're there to listen, you're there to understand and hopefully take something away with value. Um, and I think there's just people on there, the word's out, get onto Clubhouse, go tell everybody what you're about, go and sell yourself like crazy. And, and that's what I try and avoid. And you can see that. Sometimes you can pick that up from how the room's turned, but sometimes you don't quite catch it. And um, But there's people on there who spend hours of their day just lost on it. I don't. I don't get that at all. I dip in and out. I'll be honest. That that's what's always struck me. I mean, I am a Twitter holic, um, and I spend far too much of my time on Twitter. But it doesn't demand my time at a particular time. It's my choice. Whereas Clubhouse seems to do that. It's, you can't be doing, it's almost like you can't be doing something else because you can't. Yeah. You can't yeah. listen to music in the background. This is a conversation. It's a bit. Yeah. A bit different. How much? So, okay. Do you, do you use the screen screen time app to tell you how long you've been on? Should we do a share? Do, and My it, screen time is terrible. terrible. I need to do something about it. I'm a little... eight hours a day. Yeah, uh, it's 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 really embarrassing. Eight hours and forty six minutes daily average. Yeah. Um, and uh, Twitter. You've got, job, you've got a job that's sort of you've got an excuse, I guess, that says, "Well, actually, that's what I do for a living." So, yeah, that's. Part, yeah. partly down to that but that's a long time isn't it that's a day Too much. yeah yeah um and it's kind of what i look at first thing in the morning and last thing at night yeah um which i mean i've got a chapter in my book which you know the, the chapter is called always on about whether uh well how these things track you um i went and saw some expert who told me just how many sensors there are in these these devices so therefore what they know about you but also how immersed you can get in in them and whether that's good for you or not i mean there, there are arguments about it i spoke to one really interesting young academic who said the term addiction shouldn't be used it's got a precise meaning you can't say i'm addicted to a phone any more than you should say i'm addicted to chocolate it's it's the kind of trivialization uh, and they've done all sorts of good you know they're they're very good for for people in uh, as well as very bad for them so you must be a bit more measured about it but it is it's the dopamine yeah it's, it's yeah. the hit you are getting you are getting a buzz for the likes for the for the retweet yeah. for the interest and it, and it, it, it obviously yeah. i think does does have an effect yeah. um, I'm, anyway I'm, I'm gonna get more disciplined about that just moving swiftly on to innovations in technology and i did read a piece on that and i'm, I'm delighted because i think i remember seeing a piece where you were actually working with google glass yeah and, and 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 I'm I'm a geek, you know, like yourself. I I love new stuff, and I and I was struggling to see how that was. It just looked cumbersome. It was. I mean, 
I've always loved trying new things. Um, and obviously the smartphones came along uh, and they were very compelling. Um, uh, and then Google Glass came along and the idea may still come, come to pass at some stage. The idea of having information in front of your eyes. Yeah. Uh, uh, like a heads up display. Yeah. A heads up display. I found really quite exciting and I managed to persuade the BBC to let me try one out. And I wore it for three months and I was kind of obsessive about it. And took, it's also, it was a really interesting way of taking pictures because you could yeah. just click click on the side of it and, and, and take a, a picture. I took one great photo in the dentist chair of my dentist <laughs> leaning over me. Um, uh, and as I say, I was kind of obsessive and wore it for three months until I finally realized that my family, my friends, my colleagues were all right. I looked like an idiot uh, and, and I stopped. And that was the, the, the problem with it, the, the kind of- It wasn't cool. It wasn't cool. But Apple- when you got your iPhone out for the first time, everybody's like, wow, what's yeah. the design yeah. and everything? But, yeah. but not, not, not the headset. But people are still working on that idea and augmented reality, for example, headsets which uh, project information on the world. Yeah. Um, I'm going off to uh, Rolls-Royce next week to their engine factory where they're using uh, headsets to give their engineers a view of what's going on with each engine because they've got so much data coming back about each engine that they want some easy way of visualizing it for them. So those are interesting innovations. The, the one, uh, there, there are some sort of standout gadgets that, um, you know, excite, excite me. Uh, and sometimes they, they fly and sometimes they don't. I mean, the obvious one that was a wow moment for me was when Amazon's Echo came out yeah. um, and you could talk to a device and it would answer you back. And that, that was extraordinary at first. Now, it's, it's a, what's amazing is how quickly we begin to take these things for granted uh, and complain when they don't understand what we're saying or they, they speak out at the wrong time, like my watch did just now. Uh, so that was, that was a, a, a great innovation, exciting innovation. I got very excited about uh, a little British startup called Chirp that was using sound to transfer data. And I thought this was gonna be huge. It was encoding, you could send a photo by sending a chirp from one phone to another. Uh, it would come out in a sort of whistling noise and magically the photo would appear on the other person's phone. And I thought this was great. Of course, it's never taken off because who wants the <laughs> the world to be full of chirping noises from mobile phones? No, that's that's a different sort of bird spotting going on there. I mean, yeah. the, the different um, innovations, and we, you talked you touched there on DeepMind, which I'm I am really fascinated by mm. the speed at which this technology can adapt and develop. And you talk in the book about the way, and I won't we won't spoil it because I think people need to to buy the book. But um, there's a piece in there with that how it takes on some of the world's um, games like chess and go and how it very quickly sort of moves on and, and takes on people who are you know masters at it mm. and and quickly they the, the technology masters the game itself showing a level of sophistication in its application which is really quite mind-blowing and how in a sense it was probably not quite ready enough for, for dealing with things like the pandemic but if another one comes along, you'd like to think, God forbid, but if another one comes along, you'd like to think that AI will be at a point where it can be much more than- Yeah, I mean, the, AI has all sorts of, I mean, DeepMind got criticized for doing trivial things in people's view, which were, were games, but actually games uh, are just a great sort of template for trying things out. Yeah. Uh, you know, virtual worlds, Demis Asabis, the founder of DeepMind, was a chess maestro at the age of six, was massively into games, started a games company, uh, which was a kind of scenario planning company, uh, which was, you know, created a virtual world. Yeah. Those are sort of sand pits for AI. Didn't you like theme parks and- Yeah, that? exactly. He was one of the developers of theme park. Um, so games are, are a serious business. Um, I, I mean, the other interesting thing about DeepMind 
is whether we should have allowed it to be swallowed up by Google, whether we should be at all nationalistic about great technology developed here um, and owned abroad. And we, we spent 30 years as a country convinced that ownership didn't matter. And that does seem to be changing. I think, you know, Dominic Cummings, uh, whisper that name, uh, expressed concern about why DeepMind, three or four years old, was suddenly sold to Google. Yeah. Not the, the hoovering and, up. You know, if you look at where all the power is with technology, it's, it's the US, it's, it's the West Coast, and it's also China or yeah. Asia. You know what? What have we got? What have we, you know? We create something, and then we see the pound signs, and we're, yeah. we're, off, we're off with the you know. And to be fair, everywhere it does. I mean, you, if you go to the to the United States, you know, everyone says, "Why can't we be like Silicon Valley?" They say that in New York. They say that in in yeah. Boston. Uh, of course, we say it all the time here. But every other capital of Europe says the same. And actually, London uh, is you know a, has been at least a better place for tech than just about any other city in Europe. And I mean, if you, if you were coming up now with the, the next chapter of the book, um, let's say, you know, I mean, I'm hoping you're gonna produce another one because I very much enjoy you you're always on. I don't know what we're gonna call it next, not always on. Um, but if you're, going to, if you're going to create another chapter in that book, what do you think that chapter might cover? Where, where's, where's the immediate future? Well, it, it, it's, it's where I, AI, is actually going to take us next what industries are going to be transformed by them is is it all hype uh, is it overblown or will will our will our jobs and our world change and that's still a work in progress ai goes through these summers and winters where it goes in and out of fashion and it's been kind of high summer for the last 10 years but i think there's a bit of sort of impatience for it to deliver for instance think about driverless cars um, that that revolution, which is obviously an AI revolution, has been coming for quite a while and is and is actually failing to deliver at the moment. So talking about Johnny Cabs for a long time, and, yeah. and they've not materialised. Yeah. yeah, I think you you do touch on the book as well. I think about um, a few of the examples of, of failed. You know, the, the people have developed it. Some of them are actually quite good. Yeah, um, but then they've got their shortcomings, which means we've got this permanent. Sorry, I can't imagine. I can't imagine how I will feel letting a car do the driving for me if I'm sat in either one of the front seats. I just, I would. It would take a lot of getting used to. That's all. Yeah. Well, and all the the other. Didn't you drive a Tesla? And Uh, yeah, yeah, I've driven a Tesla. I mean, Teslas, you know, are are here right now, and they have this system autopilot, which is pretty controversial. You know, there's uh, the insurance body, Thatcham Research, says is not happy with people using terms like that because they say it gives people a false sense of security because it's not an autopilot. There have been some accidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you actually drove, this is, this is the really cool part of the story. It's not that you just drove a Tesla, but where were you driving that Tesla to? Yeah, well, I, I in late 2015, I was trying to convince my bosses to send me to Las Vegas again in the following January. Actually, which is kind of ironic because I began to hate that. that it's, it's, a, it's a horrible event. Um, you're eight hours behind, so you're always struggling, struggling to catch up. Las Vegas is fine the first couple of times, but is kind of a pain, a pain after that. Um, but, you know, I still felt it was a way to tell people about trends in technology. And they were getting less and less keen on funding the trip. So that year I said, we'll not just go to CES, we will go and interview the man, the most interesting man in tech, Elon Musk. And I told them this in October uh, and they said, okay, yeah, you can go, that sounds good. But by January, when we took off in the plane to Las Vegas, the interview was still not booked. You've not got it sorted. No. Uh, and finally, two days into the CES event, I got a call saying, yeah, he will see you uh, in, wow. uh, uh, in California, in Los Angeles, whereas we'd been expected to go to San Francisco. And we borrowed a Tesla and we drove from Las Vegas to LA to do the interview. And on, on the way, we used autopilot quite a bit. And at one stage, my producer was driving and the car decided to try and leave the freeway, which was kind of scary. And that slightly hindered <laughs> our enthusiasm for autopilot. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's just a, a million and one things. I mean, they, they can, 
there'll be a time when it will arrive and it will be safe and they'll have gone through all the testing. We're in those sort of early stages of, of I suppose, adjustment. It's just one of those things that's, that's going yeah. to have to arrive for us. Um, one other thing happened um, a couple of years ago, and, and I, I remember watching uh, the report. You, you would, you'd been talking about 5G, um, and actually there were two reports that I saw. One I put on Instagram, actually, was of a, a lady reporter who was giving a piece to the, I think the, the, the lunchtime news, I think it might have been. Anyway, this, the screen went very pixelated. <laughs> I thought that, that was an own goal. That was not your report. Yeah, you understand that. I think you had a bit of a hairy scare just before the actual the, the, they were recording the, the piece for you because something to do with a SIM card. Uh, oh yeah, no, that was the the day of the first five G network going live yeah. in the UK, and we were doing this thing where we were going to do a broadcast over the five G network. Was it Covent Garden? Yeah, which was you know a moment in history, as it were, yeah. and everything was working fine, and then suddenly the line went down, and you thought, what on earth has happened? And it turned out that they they'd been obsessively trialing this device testing it out doing speed tests and they chewed up all the data <laughs> the, the, the guys from the mobile phone network he had to suddenly were very red-faced and had to top up the data before we could go live brilliant that's that's i mean in terms of there's a name actually this has just reminded me there's a name we haven't featured in this this discussion of people the, the luminaries that you've you've met in uh, in your career on stephen hawking yes and, and there's a piece in the book uh, when you talk about the fact that his, it took a long time getting to, there's a, there's a great story, you've got to read the book, but there's a piece where we get to the, the point where you're meeting him and um, there's a bit of a technical glitch. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I mean, to cut a long story short, uh, to interview Stephen Hawking was a complicated affair. You had to send off the questions in, in an email and wait for the email to come back. Uh, uh, and I, I, I won't tell the exact story now, but no, no, the, no. The, the email came back with a startling revelation in it, an answer in it. But that was could not be a story until we actually recorded the interview. And he fell sick in the meantime, it was postponed. So there was it was a big moment actually recording the interview with Stephen Hawking, effectively pressing the button, which yeah. generated the voice to give the answer that I wanted. Yeah. And there was a bit of a technical glitch. Yes, uh, basically, he, his computer system had to be, uh, it's, it's a famous technique, he had to be turned off, off and on again. The famous icon, turn it, turn it off and on again. Yeah, yeah it just, exactly. It didn't work. Yeah. Um, there was, going back to the, the 5G launch, um, there was, a, I think, some references to seeing your handshaking. At the, yeah, I mean, I, this is how I start the whole book, because it kind of frames a lot of uh, issues, sort of personal and um about the broader technology because uh i had been diagnosed about four months beforehand with parkinson's disease and a, a few people knew about it this producer i worked with knew about it um and i'd gone on air and you know waved my hands around and after i came off she said to me this producer have you thought about going public and I said, oh, was it very obvious? She said, yeah. And I looked back at the tape later, the, a few days later, and it was, my hand was, I had a really bad tremor. Uh, and I used social media to announce it. I went on Twitter and said, few people have noticed. Uh, I've been diagnosed recently with Parkinson's, but, you know, I'm getting good treatment and onwards and upwards. Uh, and it was quite heartening. I got a fantastic response. You know, people say social media is a terrible place, but I got, you know, and one of them was actually saw the broadcast. I was quite concerned, right? And, you know, right. you draw your own conclusions, but I think the timing of your response was 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 great, and quite rightly, you got a lot of support as a result. But you're yeah. doing, you know, they're, they're, when when people are given a diagnosis like that, it shows something of the person. I think as to how how you how do you deal with that? Do you sort of go into shell? Do you just sort of feel sorry for yourself? Do you? I'm sure there's lots of emotions that have that have gone through your mind, but some of the things that you're doing is literally sort of. To, change the way we're thinking about this. There's, there's organizations that you're working with and you're using the skill that you've got and the knowledge and the connections that you've got in technology, I think to try and move. Yeah, I'm trying to find out, frankly, I'm trying to get involved in any car possible and find out what is going on from a technology point of view. And AI is becoming a factor here. I've been involved in two projects whereby they're gathering loads of data. because It's a very difficult thing to diagnose precisely or to grade. You know, is your hand shaking that much? You, I, I drag my foot. Um, uh, and both trials have involved doing lots of exercises. The most recent one, actually wearing sensors uh, 
on my arm while I'm doing exercises, while doing one of these Zoom calls with the researcher and the, 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 the data from the sensors being Bluetoothed right. effectively to the researcher, producing this huge data bank from which they hope to use machine learning techniques to you know, tell them something uh, about how you measure Parkinson's which is one of the difficult things. So in as you can measure it, it's very difficult to know, for instance, whether the medication is right, whether you know it needs to be increased or decreased or what. So uh, I'm fascinated by that for obvious reasons, both personal and professional, yeah, yeah. putting quite a lot of energy into looking at that. And also for um, characters that are supporting that, that particular one as well, and raising awareness of it as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was also, um, Again, something else that I watched uh, in real time was the um, the breakfast piece you did on um, on Parkinson's when uh, you, you there was a there was a dissection of a brain and you yeah I went to the brain bank and this is just before we went into lockdown. There's a brain bank, Parkinson's brain bank in uh, uh, a London hospital, which is vital. I mean, it, it's not so high tech. Well, it's kind of an old fashioned tech. It's you know dissecting brains and looking looking at what's happened to them yeah. um and i went there to you know talked about leaving my own brain to that that research which was quite you know uh a moment for me I'm sure. um yeah and actually held a brain that the doctor this amazing researcher gave me to hold which is again quite an experience especially something to show to breakfast tv audience I mean, they, they said something in the, in the piece, well, I think you covered in the book about there being something about iron within the brain. Yeah, they, they, they had done, one of the doctors there had done his PhD in, in the brain bank and uh, had detected high levels of iron in people who uh, had Parkinson's. And there's some work going on, on on a drug that can maybe remove that iron from the brain. Wow. It's, so there's, I mean, there's, a, there's so many developments happening in so many areas. Yeah. So COVID, but COVID hasn't held us back. Um, we've not touched on the app, the NHS app, which there is a piece. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious that you've had a very busy day um, today, Rory. So I'm not going to take uh, much more of your time. We've also got a son who's called you, so you need to get back to that. Um, and I'm cooking dinner tonight. Oh well, you're on point. <laughs> I've managed to delegate that one for once, so <laughs> I've got, I've got help. But no, no. Um, I just think from, from my perspective, you've offered a great deal of value in terms of the time you've given us today. Um, the book is certainly worth a read. How can people grab a copy? Is it on the usual channels? Is it, is it available? On the usual channels? Um, there it is. Uh, always yeah. on. Yeah. Oh, yes. There we go. There we go. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's obviously on Amazon. Uh, if it's not in your bookstore... Go and ask the manager, why not? Where is it? Um, <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. Um, it's available as an audio book as well, if you fancy that. I spent three days recording the audio book. It's available for Kindle. So it's in all, all formats, in all, in all good quality outlets. Including- uh, I, I, somewhere I've still got Steve Jobs' autobiography. Um, I think it was possibly created, but it was... It, uh, I'm struggling. It's, a, it's quite a brick. And, yeah. I, and I must admit, I'm not the world's greatest reader. I try my best, but if I get something that cooks me, I'll read it. And I'm not just saying this, Rory, because we're having this conversation. I read that book in a day and a half, which is which is and not phenomenal for me. It's good, um, but it just really it just and you've got a lovely quote there from Stephen Fry in the book as well, which I think is yeah is very apt. Very so I, I, I think um, for the listeners, I think is is you know thank you on behalf of the listeners. And uh, one last thing that I'll ask you is, do, is there something that's in this wonderful career of 30 plus years with the BBC um, that has been a memorable moment that you, you think you'd like to share? It's maybe something that as an insight that, that might help our listeners? Not so much an insight as the wackiest story I've ever done. Oh, I like wacky. Which is uh, a few years back, a Swedish office blog decided on an innovation, instead of uh, an ID card to get in the building, people could have a chip implanted in them. And I went over and had a chip implanted in me, which allowed me to get into their building. And the chip is still there. It's oh, still <laughs> and every now and then uh, I get, it only works with Android phones, I get an NFC reader on, 
on a phone and put it on there. And the only information that's on that chip is my name and contact details. So whenever I forget my name or my phone number, all I have to do is that, and there we are. You're brilliant. You are the future. You are, you know, that's that's just that's just fabulous. You know, I think um, talking about augmented augmented realities and and cloning yourself and turning yourself into a cyborg. I think I think you're on the way there. Yeah, it's <laughs> to happen. Uh, Rory, it's been fabulous to talk to you um, today. I've really enjoyed it, and I'd like to just say again, um, for those of you that would, are interested in talking about or listening about technology and hearing about where things trends, what's happened. I would strongly suggest that listeners keep track of um, your podcast, Tech Tents on World Service and BBC Sounds. Um, Ruskin147 as a Twitter account, definitely worth following because you keep up with what's going on. You provide wonderful content. I'm a fan and uh, long may it continue. Thank you very much, Roy. Very much indeed. It's very kind of you. And you were recording, weren't you? <laughs> Good check. <laughs> yes. Find out more and join our growing business community by visiting hresource.co.uk.